Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, Finaloop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try Finaloop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finaloop.com slash D2C pod and get 14 days free and a two-month P&L within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC pod? Today, we're joined by Celia Lewis and Stephanie Kimmel, the co-founders of Tulip. So guys... I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Tulip and the brand that you guys are building? All right. So Tulip is a modern uh, direct-to-consumer storage brand designing really sophisticated um, and thoughtful products for cannabis consumers. So we have been around for about six months in the market, have been working on this for several years leading up to it. And we really saw an awesome opportunity in this growing market to support people at home with a ritual that they love that previously people were storing in shoeboxes, Ziploc baggies, maybe a paper bag. Um, And cannabis is something that is product. People can go out in the world at a dispensary in many states just around the corner and buy in these really chic and incredible spaces. And so we were saying, hey, why are you still storing these products that you might be spending, you know, 50, 100, 100 plus dollars on? Um, and that was the idea for Tula. No, amazing. And I, I love the the design of it. The products are so recognizable. Um, so we were really excited to have you guys on on the podcast to talk about. And I think you guys are at a really exciting point in the company as well. Like you're saying, you, you guys just came out, you're in a new and emerging space. So um, really excited to kind of spend this episode going into how you guys built it, how you guys thought about the product, where you guys are at today, and being able to tell that whole story. So why don't we, before we go too far into Tulip, let's go uh, a little further backwards. Why don't you guys, uh, both Celia and Stephanie, you guys can kind of go one at a time. I'd love to get your individual backgrounds, like what you guys were doing, what you were building before that kind of led you to this path towards building Tulip. Sure. So um, I spent the majority of my career um, working on a business that I co-founded called Dormify, um, home decor for college students in small spaces. And there... Um, I led a brand and product development, um, merchandising, and so on, um, and you know started the business from the ground up. And while I was there, my father-in-law Joel, who's our third co-founder, um, was really was looking for a better way to to store his 
cannabis products. And he was looking at it from the lens of preservation. He thought, you know, I I buy a lot at a time and and like to store it for a while and my goods dry out and there's got to be a better solution. And he had tried everything. Um, and, you know, he wasn't really looking at it like, let's start a business. Let's, you know, start a brand. Let's make products. He's 72 years young. Um, and however, but, you know, with my background in um, developing products and a brand and focusing on a, a niche market and, and trying to solve a problem within that market, um, I thought, you know, this is actually a great idea that I think a lot of people um, or this is a problem that I think a lot of people may have. And being a mom of two toddlers and having cannabis in my home, I thought, you know, not only are you having, you know, a problem where you're you can't find a solution to preserve your goods. Um, I'm looking for a solution that locks. And with that, I'd love for it to look really pretty and be a home decor piece. And, you know, through many, many conversations around, you know, our dining room table, um, we thought about how, like Celia said, a lot of people are going to dispensaries that look like Apple stores and they're bringing their goods home and storing them in kind of makeshift ways. Um, so why don't we offer a product and a brand that makes cannabis feel at home in your life um, or have give it a considered place to live in your home? And while we were kind of thinking about how we would bring this to life, we were introduced to Celia, um, given her extraordinary background and um, a skill set that we would need on the team to help bring this product to life. Um, we we shared this idea with her, and I think she had the same reaction. And thus, um, we started building and ideating on what this would look like. Amazing. And Stephanie, just to dig a little bit deeper there, uh, I'm very familiar with Dormify. You guys were kind of like a uh, a marketplace for goods for that were for the dorm, right? Is that what it was like an online marketplace where you can go and buy any sort of goods that were related to like college dorm life? Yeah, essentially, yes. But we did um, develop our own line of product too, which made up about 70% of the product catalog as well as a marketplace for other goods. that Got it. So you, you guys were building marketplace so you could, you know, leverage some other products, but you guys were also building your own products and selling them as your own uh, through through Dormify. So that probably gave you a good uh, background in what it takes to develop and take products to market and and grow your your own sort of thing. So um, we'll get into that a little bit more. And Celia, what, what's your pro what's your background? Yeah, so my background's in product design and development. I was a business undergrad, really found this awesome niche in studying how supply chains are built, how products are made, how you actually market those products and brands. Um, loved it. it. was totally the the place for me, and that's where I've built my career. So I've gotten to work at companies like Herman Miller, doing research, studying how workplaces are designed, how products are made, how you make a really comfortable office chair um, to, um, you know, some of the early direct-to-consumer brands away being... Um, you know, the biggest ones, they're doing product development. A lot of the 
products that you see on the website today, I either developed or had some part in influencing and got the opportunity to travel around the world, going to manufacturers, seeing on the ground how you actually design and make all of these products. And have really gotten to take that to the team here at Tulip. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. Like your background, not only starting in at Herman Miller, which is like one of the most iconic uh, American furniture manufacturers, and being able to then transition from there into uh, a way which it, you know I have actually I have the uh, the bigger carry on suitcase, and that is like and it's the uh, the metal version, right? And it is like the best bag ever. Like I, I even tell my friends, they're like, oh, you should get Ramoa or this or that. I'm like, no, 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 this is the best bag in the world. So clearly, um, you know, you, you've done your, your, your homework. Yeah. Well, Blaine, I love to hear that because aluminum was my first and biggest project, um, when I came into LA. So I was on that one from the ground up. So about to see it from you know, very first sample working with the manufacturer to getting our first production run out the door. Um, so great end-to-end experience, um, like many startups. So yeah, glad glad to hear you love it. I have the, uh, I don't know if you remember it, but I have the Dwayne Wade uh, aluminum version, which was which is like, has this like palm tree print inside and it's like black aluminum on the outside. And I still have it. I ordered it like probably five or six years ago. And it's like, it's the best. Yeah, that lighting was sweet. <laughs> it was. Um, okay, so I'd love to, why don't we dig into a little bit of the product development side of things, right? Like you just said, it. a lot of the work revolved with, um, you know, meeting with manufacturers, taking that product to market. But like, why don't you talk about whether it's Tulip, Away, anything, just like best practices. How do you go from an idea to ending up with an amazing product? Like, how do you do it? Yeah. So, I mean, I would love to say like, here's the process. Um, and like, you know, here's a framework for how you do it. And certainly all that stuff exists. Obviously the world is a much messier place and, you know, probably like a cobweb or something is like a more appropriate diagram for how things actually work. Um, but you know, in, in reality, you really look at approaching it from a couple of different angles. So one side is the actual product design. Um, and that's, you know, what, what is the product going to look like? How is it going to work? What materials are it going to be made out of? Um, and I, I typically see that approach from two ways. One is looking at market references um, or merchandising references. If there's anything out there in the world, world, what is it? What are the materials? What are like similar comps you might be looking at? Um, and then the other side of it is actually, you know, your own generative ideas. Um, so that may come from a, a spark, a, a piece of inspiration that may come from you know, insights from research. And you, you basically like, you, you start sketching it out in whatever way you can. I mean, look, you can hire industrial designers, you can hire professionals, and you certainly absolutely need those folks um, at some point in the process. But I find the best place to start is just pen to paper, cardboard, you know, whatever materials make sense given the the product that you're looking at. And that's what we did. How do you budget for that? Because there's margin of error that you also have to account for, right? I mean, it depends as well on the scale of the people you're working with, but how do you budget for something like that? And how do you pair that up with the standard? Like what is the minimum standard 
um, that we are going to tolerate for the quality of the product that we're making. So are you referring to like production quality at the end yes. of the day? Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's a couple of different angles for that too, right? I mean, there's libraries of production quality standards for a lot of different types of products out there. So furniture has a bunch, luggage has a bunch, um, cosmetic packaging. Um, so those are certainly reference points that you can start with um, and in the, the right place to look for. The other side I, I call craftsmanship. Um, that's a lot more ambiguous, but that's, hey, what what is the quality of this connection or these parts fitting together that feels like the right place for us to be um so you know this can be things like how flush is this particular you know material with another piece of material um you really like get into the weeds on some of that stuff like it's almost like grammar for writing um for physical product and you know there's no hard and fast rule but you you want to do like look through all of those types of details and that's stuff that as a as a consumer we don't think about unless it's broken or wrong um in a really great product you don't even notice it so um those are like the two approaches that i typically take and then how did you guys connect and come together uh to start building tulip so origin story of tulip was um i was when i was out of way i was moonlighting as a pilates instructor for just like a fun personal project and i was teaching one of my friends from high school who's a graphic designer and just had done a ton of work with Eric Stephanie's husband um, when he was working at his previous company, um, Flamingo. And she was like, hey, you know, I caught up with Eric recently. He, he and his dad have been talking about this idea. Like, they're looking for a product person who, like, knows physical product and supply chains and should get in touch. And pretty much, like, the week before... New York City and, and the world shut down for COVID. We met like with masks in a cafe and, and talked about it. Um, and it felt like our, our skill sets and interests was a really great fit. Um, so a very serendipitous um, conversation and opportunity that um, has really grown into the, the business that we all get to be a part of today. Stephanie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the like origin and backstory? Because like you said, you guys started working on this idea and ideating on it, uh, you know, a couple years ago, and it takes time to take a product to market. So Stephanie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that whole process was like on on your end? How did, you know, now we understand what the inception of the idea was, but like what were the next steps before you could really, you know, take this product to market? So while Celia and my father-in-law, Joel, were hard at work um, developing this product, um, our first, you know, go-to-market set of products, which, as Celia said, took took a long time because a lot of thought and hard work and iterations went into it, um, we were also building a brand around it. So really thinking about what does Tulip stand for? who is Tulip for, um, and what we came up with was really just the authentic um, nature of how we got started, which was, you know, every one of us, Celia, myself, Eric, my husband, and his father, Joel, um, all were really excited about the product for personal use. So right there, we realized that 
you know, this really, like cannabis, spans across ages from 21 to, you know, 72 or 99, whatever you want to call it. Um, so as well as genders and across cultures, too. I mean, cannabis use, especially now, you know, everybody's using it and um, in in different forms. So there's people who use it as a wellness practice, people who use it for fun, people who use it for pain, anxiety, um, and so on. And then, um, you know, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but also, you know, one thing that we stand for, as I say, that it's kind of like cross-cultural too, is um, we wanted to be a part of social change and awareness around the injustices that still exist today. So that was definitely going to be baked into our brand. Um, and with that, we wanted to uh, be a part of the notion that we wanted to destigmatize cannabis use. So that's where, you know, the name came in and developing a product that you would want to actually put out on display as far as your storage, as opposed to kind of like shoving under your bed or putting in your closet. Um, and like I said, in, and we can open up a whole conversation around this, like we know how lucky we are today to be a part of this industry and be talking about it where there's people who are still incarcerated for carrying a small bit of weed on them, um, even within the past few years. Um, so that's what we were working on from the brand perspective. Um, and really wanted to go to market with a really strong brand identity, both in the way that it looked and what we stood for and what we were going to talk about. Yeah, and I'd love to get a little bit more into, like you said, the brand mission as well as like the execution and brand identity on top of that. So, uh, you know, just to just to clarify, is, was one of the th motivating factors behind the mission of the brand the fact that, you know, there's all these people who might be like at a time where it's accessible, it's being legalized and decriminalized all over the U.S. There's also, um, you know, another sort of pe there's all these people who are also being incarcerated and maybe not let free for the same things that people can like just openly have in their home if they, you know, buy it today. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. Um, that's exactly right. So we partner um, with an organization called Last Prisoners Project. Um through kind of donations to them financially as well as spreading awareness about the organization through our content um, and social as well as information about the organization on our site as well as allowing our customers to write to their local representatives about where they stand on the issue. Um, and as we grow looking for other additional partners and other missions um, or organizations rather to support that mission. Got it. That makes a bunch of sense. And I think it's, it's really important. And I think the way that you guys are, um, building out a product and a, a community with a real mission behind it is, is it definitely is a great way to, to like spread that message. Um, so that's awesome. Um, moving forward. So what were the next steps once you kind of like had the brand mission and like you understood what that it was like more than just a product. You wanted to create a beautiful product. You had the use case, you had the mission. Then 
then kind of what what are the next steps in terms of like taking it into production? What are the things you're thinking about from an operational um, and execution perspective? Yeah, so, I mean, we touched on this earlier. Obviously, execution quality is essential. Um, so you're starting to pull all these pieces together. How is the brand showing up on the product? How is it showing up on your website? What's the website design? And how is this all looking cohesive? So that was a really big focus. I think mean, you know, this team has been incredible. We've all come from really strong consumer brands. And so that experience and high that we've all been able to hone over time, I think has really helped us um, bring this together so successfully with Tulip. Um, so that was clearly a big piece of it. Um, there's also just the the logistical and the operational and the supply chain side of it. Um, so it's all of this like basically constant, you know, analysis that we're refreshing as we go of what what's the margin, what are the costs, what are we going to do in terms of packaging, um, and how does this all layer up? And so um, that was something that, you know, again, great experienced team. I think we all knew where the right places were to invest. Um, those dollars and where the places were that weren't necessary from a brand or customer value lens. Um, how how do you make the product, sorry, the brand show up in the product? Um, I know you guys have done this multiple times and it, it comes like second nature, but you know, how do you, is it, it's more than just the colors, right? It's probably a systematic process of, you know, who is our target demographic? How would they engage with this product? Where exactly in the home are we visualizing they would place it? And then, you know, what what is your process when communicating with the brand team, what it would have to look like in the product? So we really like put our heads together because like Celia said, you know, different skill sets and kind of how do we marry the two, the brand and then the integrity of the functionality of the product. Um, so there's a few touch points where, brand really shines through obviously you said color palette we actually spent a lot of time on our color palette um so we weren't just choosing you know a millennial pink or something like that um that we know commercially does do really well um but we wanted to go to market with a palette that felt fresh and stood out a bit um and i know that sounds like really contrived and ambiguous and like what does that even mean um, but we, we developed more tangibly, I guess, this like, um, color system where the exterior of the boxes weren't, you know, boring colors, but something that felt like it could naturally fit within your home. So we have a forest green, an oat color, which is like a cream and then a sky blue. And all of these were sort of neutrals. But then when you open the boxes, you got a little bit of a pop of color, whether the color was bright or the interior color um, juxtaposes the outside color and creates like a really fun combination. And we just wanted the palette to kind of feel um, sort of owned, like Tulip's colors and the way that we combine colors, as well as make people smile and um, have it fit seamlessly within your home. But you know, stand out a little bit, like a conversation piece or something that you're proud to have. Um, beyond that, we we actually thought pretty hard about where the brand would show up on the product. Um, so we didn't really want to slap 
the word tulip all over it. Um, again, we want this to, as much as we want it to say tulip everywhere and people to say, what's tulip or recognize it in someone's home and then be able to go and buy it. Um, we really wanted it to be very tasteful. So there are a few um, branding moments within the jar, uh, tubes and jars and in the inside of the box that we have tulip lightly embossed or debossed um and it's very very tasteful and then on the exterior of the box we have a, a beautiful um our logo mark which looks like a, a tool like a, a tulip if you're looking um directly down at a flower um and it's sort of like this really fun mark um and that's on the center of the box and we sort of liked how it was reminiscent of like an apple logo on top of your laptop um and that's in like a silver plate. So those are, and and then finally we did this exterior ribbing to the box, which felt like very high end and notable and um, reminded us of barware to kind of hint to the customer that, you know, this is something that you can put out on display. Yeah, I, I love that. The reason I ask is because to me, it's fascinating how, you know, how companies keep that integrity and those principles from the very early days. Um, you know, companies like Flamingo, Away, you could even think of Apple. All of this is definitely going to get challenged as the company grows and scales. And um, if you lose that touch, um, the brand loses its sort of entity. And so to have that defined from a very early stage, you know, you might think, some people might think, well, like spending that much time on colors and these details, sort of a waste of time, let's get to revenue. But um, it's probably you know, good use of time to keep that core to the business as it scales. Guys, the next question I have, it's, um, it kind of ties into the branding component, but I think it's something a lot of founders think about a lot when ideating on a different idea. It's how did you guys, like, how did you guys validate this? Like, obviously there was the idea of like, okay, this is a really good idea. Um, you know, this is something that I would use. Was there validation that went beyond that uh in terms of saying oh once the unit economics checked out once we know we can develop the pro product we're confident and we've done this before so we have the reps so we can validate it or were there any sorts of other validation that went into it before you guys started to invest and really build the brand yeah so we did a fairly extensive amount of qualitative surveys um sorry qualitative interviews with people it, Still in our networks, but you know, a layer or two beyond folks in your household or, or your like best friend, and that was really telling. We got to speak with people of all ages, all different types of use cases, and consistently, everything that we heard was nobody had a storage solution or even knew how they should be storing product. Um, and so, you know, that in addition to a number of more detailed insights that led to the features that, that you see today really gave us confidence um, in this idea. And then we further validated the actual scale and market potential through a quantitative survey of thousand plus respondents to further vet, you know, hey, here's the idea, here's what we're thinking, price point, what have you, um, and got very positive data behind that. Um, and, and last but not least was also just, you know, looking at, Hey, we're looking to raise a friends and family round, like who's interested in actually putting money behind that. And I think that was also, you know, a telling sign, um, of, 
broader network also believing in this potential too. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. The different signs that you had that this could be something. I think um, you know a lot of times when you come up with an idea, there's like this idea like, oh, I want it, so everyone else wants it. But then it's also going through like you ha- you ha- kind of have to go through the reps, especially if you're going to be raising friends and family capital, especially if you're going to be devoting your time to it to like really validate. And I think the ways that you were talking talking about, about doing some qualitative research beyond just your networks, as well as combining that with the, you know, general idea and the intuition that you guys have from as product builders and knowing that, okay, if any other sort of thing that's in the household, there's, there's products around being able to contain them, display them, et cetera. So for this product niche that's emerging and only becoming more popular, like we can build that solution. And as long as you validate that, you're in a good position. So that leads me into, so once you guys have validated it, um, you mentioned you raised a little friends and family capital. Um, You know, how much like ballpark did you raise out of the gates? And then what, what were you guys funding with that? Was it going right into production or like what were next steps once you were able to um, secure a little bit of funding? Yeah. So I would say that it was really proof of concept. Um, it was really just saying like, hey, will, will other people believe in this idea as much as us and be willing to part ways with harder dollars um, to support us? So that that was really our approach there. We've um, otherwise um, really been funded through our pre-order launch, which was a really exciting and I would say somewhat unique approach at this time, um, especially after the last five, 10 years of VC money going to direct to consumer businesses. We said, hey, you know, we we believe in growing with our community um, and let's start by building that community and making sure the community shows up and is, you know, as excited as we are behind this. Um, I definitely want you know stuff to share more about this, but we had a very successful pre-order launch. We did it technically through Shopify. We had talked about Kickstarter, had its own pros and cons, still like you know very valid channel that many people use, especially with hard goods businesses. Um, but we ended up going straight launching on Shopify, um, and that was a big part of how we were able to start this business. That helped funded our first um, production run. Um, and ultimately you would get us momentum to where we are today. Um, but Steph, do you want to share more about what, what we actually did? Cause I think the strategy here was really unique and cool. Yeah. So we were kind of putting our heads together with, you know, you asked the question about where did our, um, where do we use our funds and our money that we raised and, and pretty much all of it went to the inventory, um, and building the website and we we didn't have so much left over for any big marketing push and um you know with marketing you want to have kind of a diversified strategy so with that we we decided to go very very grassroots with our initial um launch and we decided to do kind of like the antithesis of of really what you see today as opposed to launching with um you know paying influencers which we truly believe in and support that industry um and anything splashy like that or even getting you know launch press we decided to just 
tell all of our friends and family about it and start this kind of chain mail where we wanted people to organically share this with everyone that they know would love it. Um, whether it was like people who smoke a lot of weed or people who love new products or like to learn about things going on in the DTC world, um, people who love organizational products, people who are always looking to get really creative and new gifts for people. Um, so we each, you know, put together our own lists of our personal friends through our Gmail accounts and told them what we were up to. We gave them a little discount that we said we were going to run for the next couple of weeks. And we said, share this with anyone and everyone you know that would love it. And the way that we knew that it worked was because we literally did nothing else in the beginning. And all of our early revenue came from the four of us, our four team members, sending those emails out to friends. And we were getting orders from people that we we didn't recognize their names. I don't know anybody in this state. And um, that's how we knew that it was really working. And that was really exciting. Um, and I can also share a little bit about how we came up with that idea. Um, but my, my husband and I um, invested in um, an athleisure wear brand, um, Outdoor Voices, you know, a many years ago um early on and I said hey like you know I want to share this with my friends and everyone's going to ask me like oh do you get a discount or whatever so they they gave me a discount code promotion code that I could use to share with my friends and they said that it was one of their top um promotion codes that they had had um, for a significant period of time. So I think that like people hearing about a brand from a friend, feeling like they get this inside scoop, it's new, it's cool, I get a discount to this, I get to share um, this with other people, I get to be a tastemaker, the first one to try it, um, really works, especially since I think people are kind of inundated with seeing the same things that everyone else is seeing um, over the social platforms, which which again also really works. Yeah, I think that is a really cool way to launch because I know so many people think about like, okay, we're we know we're onto a product, but like once rubber starts to meet the road, they're like people start freaking out about like launch strategy. Oh, are we telling people? Are we just going to Facebook? Like, are we going to Kickstarter? What are we doing here? So knowing that you can build a product that not only you love, but that you can start to share with your networks and see the like viral coefficiency, so to speak, of those products. Like you were saying, you start to see those orders coming in from people that like are outside of your networks, which means like, okay, things are like actually starting to work. And then if you can see those snippets of like early sort of traction and early market product market fit, then you're like, okay, now we can kind of like start dialing up the, or like opening up the floodgates a little bit in terms of like, ads and growth and that sort of thing to drive performance so um i love that in terms of strategy in terms of like pre-sale and going through your existing network to start uh start selling what else was uh did you guys focus on when you had just launched right like uh, like how much i guess by this stage are are you guys still off a, your first supply run are you guys having to order more inventory like what walk us through 
from launch to the first couple months and how you guys were doing things? Yeah, so um, so we launched on pre-order um, initially, and then um, basically, you know, as soon as our first order came in, started uh, fulfilling and switching to, I call it add to cart, but normal fulfillment. Um, unfortunately, it only lasted for like a week or two because we a couple of things happened. One is our pre-sale had gone really well. So we had sold through most of our first order. Um, number two was we had recently launched our TikTok channel, um, which, you know, just organic. And that's really you know, where we are today with it. And I think it was like, I was sitting at our warehouse, working with the team there, you know, going through pack out guides and all the stuff that you have to do to just make sure your first shipments go smoothly. And you know, I'm seeing all these messages, all these orders come in and messages from the team. And we had had a, one of our um, videos had just gone viral. Um, and, you know, I'm like sitting there with the warehouse, like, um, rep going through it and saying like, Hey, so this is like how our brand's going to work <laughs> um, over the next couple months. We're just going to be really successful on TikTok and in these other places. And suddenly we're going to have all these orders to fulfill. Um, so, you know, I think like a couple of things, I mean, it, in reality started clicking um, very quickly. We had just been starting to test into paid ads and we're seeing traction from that um, and growing our social presence on Instagram as well. So all of those, I think, were just things that we were growing and seeing those impacts um, scale. So it all happened in some some ways unplanned, but at once. And so we sold out. Um, and then really it's been rushing to keep up with demand um, largely since. Um, luckily, in, you know, right now we're in stock, which is great. It's a you know important place to be to really be able to continue marketing and growing and running um, a sustainable business but we are well beyond our first production order at this point um, and, you know, can, continuing to grow um, in, in that way. So that's an amazing problem to have, but it, it is still like a problem, right? When you're thinking about you have all this demand, you have like TikToks going off where there can be a ton of product demand coming in. How do you think about, especially in like the early stages of a business, managing your amount of cash, like how much inventory you need to buy? Like how do you even forecast demand when you don't even have like those data points like an existing brand who knows like oh you know this is typically how much of this product line we sell in this year so we should order about this amount like how do you kind of gauge for demand and and ordering when you're this early in the business i, I want to add to that too like with TikTok, it's like the viral coefficient is so so hard to predict too it's like how do you know when a video is just going to go completely crazy and you're going to get you know five, six figures of orders in a day. Yeah, I mean, you don't. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, luckily I've lived through this. Um, out of way, there were many different instances of very successful marketing moments or launches. So I've seen websites crash. I've seen, um, you, know, you name it. So um, in, in some cases, there's a personal element of like, if you've been there before, you, you kind of roll with it a little bit more than if it's your first time. Um, but... I think there's a couple of things that we've done um, in terms of like call it first order, even first few orders, um, approach it from a few lenses. One is certainly what are your manufacturing requirements or constraints? What are your MOQs? 
What can you negotiate with your supplier? What is that all summing to? You know, there's unit costs, but like, what is your total buy going to be? And how much is that like of what's in your bank account? What, what are you planning to spend on marketing? Like you look at it from the financial lens and then you look at it from like, okay, how many people am I going to have to sell this to? How many people per day is that per week, per month? Um, and what have I sold in the past? And like, you know, how, how have those numbers gone? So it's, it's really like a, a best estimate. Um, and frankly, even when you're running like a core business and you're launching a new product category, like you're still up against a lot of these same types of challenges. Um, you know, I think the color buy was something that was like one stuff and I spent a lot of time working on, um, me, um, you know, didn't, didn't get all the colors right, but luckily we've learned that our customers really love our color assortment. And so that's a really unique thing. Often most retailers see one or two colors account for 80 plus percent of your sales with us. We see a much more even distribution goes back to our really strong merchandising and color strategy that we have a fairly universal and gender neutral assortment. And so that's been something that has um, come back and really helped us. We haven't been sitting on say like months worth of one color while we're flying through another. We've been able to manage that a lot more efficiently. How would you say that the relationship that you have with your manufacturer plays a role here? Because at the end of the day, you can have all the numbers and everything. It's still going to be hard to predict, but when you need to push something through the line and your team needs to get in there, where is human relationship? Where, where does it play a factor here? Oh yeah. I mean, relationships, everything it, you can, you can negotiate whatever contract you want at the end of the day, it's the relationship that's going to make anything happen. Um, so I, um, I, we've been working with our manufacturer for two years now. We worked with them through all of our sampling and prototyping. Um, I'm talking to my manufacturing counterpart every day, um, at all hours. Um, I, I've been on WeChat for years with manufacturing partners. So, you know, I know her life story. I know like what, like what her latest dating history is, like you name it. Um, so I think just like really building a strong personal relationship is essential. And it's been really tough in these last few years manufacturers in China um you you can't go and like see people as often as you have and so really leveraging all of the tools um available is really important and you know from the get-go there were conversations with this manufacturer that were new business we are not gonna we don't have historical numbers we're not gonna know and we need flexibility um, and just really digging into what that actually means, what that looks like in terms of production schedules, so on and so forth. Um, I think the more transparency you can bring to your partners, the better. And, and bring them, bringing them along in your journey. I mean, I see them as, an ex- you know, my, my sales rep there is an extension of our team. And she really is. She spends just as much time as we all do on our product. And Celia, uh, another question I have in regards to like the supply chain and the sourcing stuff is like, clearly you have a strong background in that and knowing how to do that, working with manufacturers and doing that yourself. So did you guys bring in any third parties to help you with like the QC and that whole process? Or was this something that you were really like, you knew how to run yourself. So you were able to 
uh, just take responsibility for and do? Yeah, so sourcing, I led all of that um, and leveraged my own network and my experience doing that. Some are, call it referred partners. They're partners I've worked with in the past. Some are new, um, and you just you you learn how to how to approach all of those um, relationships in terms of like quality and inspection. So um, we've been working with a third party called Kima Q I M A, um, big third party quality network. They do. Uh, like a whole bunch of stuff in terms of quality and inspection services. And um, they were really our eyes on the ground when we were doing our first production runs. You were looking at, you know, three weeks or some some number of like quarantine if you were traveling to China and traveling just wasn't an option um, in, in most places aside from that. And so they were really a huge asset to us and a huge partner um, in this process. And I've worked with them in the past on many different types of products and you highly recommend um, their services and an option for companies and brands of all sizes. Um, and, there, and there's other people out there who do it. They just happen to be ones that I'd known and worked with. Yeah, and it, it's such a it's such a competitive advantage for you guys to have someone who's been in the operational seat who's like really, really done this because there are a lot of brands where at the end of the day, you're trying to build a great product. You're trying to get it manufactured on time, shipped on time, um, and something that customers really love. And a lot of people come in and start brands because they want to start a brand, but they don't actually understand the executional chops that it takes to take a product to market. So I think, um, you know, you guys are lucky to have that experience in-house as opposed to learning on the fly uh, for your first time. Yeah. I mean, I always say you can study your stuff, but Product development, supply chain is really like an apprenticeship industry and space. Um, you, um, you, you learn from your mistakes, and you you really only learn like how to do it right because you've done it wrong before. Um, and you know, hopefully, you're in you know communities or companies where you have experts and other people that can help make sure those mistakes aren't you know, financially or from like a customer lens incredible, you know, dramatic and, and negatively consequential, but you, um, really need to, you know, lean on experts. Um, if this isn't something you've done before to help just keep, keep everything afloat. There's so many moving pieces and it's, um, really a juggling act, no matter how experienced you are. And then Stephanie, I also want to talk about, cause we we were just covering TikTok and how that kind of blew up as well as like organic growth strategies. Your product is obviously cool. It's unique. It stands out. So what was the TikTok strategy and, and more like organic social content strategy? Like how do you make your brand show up in content? Like how are people, how are creators creating content with your brand? Like, and how has that kind of contributed to growth? So I'll start with one of the challenges, um, since I think this is really unique to our industry and and not something that's talked about enough. Um, but given the you know federal regulations around cannabis, it's it's very hard for us to post as freely as we would like to around the nature of our product, how it's used, what it's used with. Um, so it's a little bit of a fun challenge, although I wish that we didn't have to deal with this kind of hurdle. Um, so a lot of our content, um, sort of like 
hints at how you would be using it um, because a lot of our posts on TikTok in particular have been actually taken down and our account has been suspended so many times, um, which really is a whole conversation in and of itself because so much of what is on TikTok is can be inappropriate. And, you know, there's there's so many articles out there that we've all read about the type of content that does go on the platform um, and especially given the legalization in in so many states um it's it feels like something that that we're working towards but right now we have to be very creative with how we position the product on the platforms um all of the platforms really and we want to follow the rules and regulations um so as far as our strategy um we have a little bit of a different strategy on tiktok versus instagram as most brands do you know with tiktok we're really trying to come up with um, short, quick, fun videos of using the product that sort of just make people smile. Um, and on TikTok, it's more of a, a showcase of our brand um, as well as the product features. And we have a few different content pillars, whether it's education around our product and all of the incredible functions and features and detail that Celia put into developing the product um, to what the brand stands for, um, the people behind it, our, our mission to support Last Prisoners Project and the destigmatization around cannabis, and then really what works best for us is a two-way dialogue. Um, so learning from our customers, creating a conversation among them. And then we have a lot of really fun um, new content series coming up in the next couple months that we're excited to share. Um, and much like the box itself, how you kind of like open it up and there's all these beautiful little gems and jewels inside and different trinkets and how they work. It's sort of we're kind of peeling back the onion on the soul of our brand, which we are, get more and more excited about every day. Yeah. And the other thing is just kind of as we wrap up here that, yeah, the the whole TikTok thing and content, it's it's got to be so challenging to sort of navigate. But you guys are also in a really interesting place because it seems like with the form factor of your product, it can be accessible to even non-cannabis users, right? Like I look at it and I'm like, oh, I could store a lot of things in here. It's like a great little storage, like mini uh, setup for, for the house, for whatever it is that I want to store. So have you guys seen that as well? Are people using it in other ways beyond cannabis? Like, are there other ways in interesting ways that people have created content that way? Um, would Yeah, I would love to just hear about some of the other use cases that you're starting to see. Yeah, I mean, I, would, we were, I just kind of had a conversation about this over Instagram um, where... There's a lot of things, for example, that you don't want toddlers, for example, to get into. Cannabis gets a, a bad reputation, but there's a lot of medications, um, even cosmetics that, you know, there's a higher percentage of poison control calls over. But cannabis is what you see in the media. Um, so with that, there's a ton of things that you know, for that purpose alone or for something that you just don't want anyone to see or get into based on the lock feature um, that people could store. Um, and, you know, sex toys actually has been 
one of the more interesting um, topics that's been asked a lot via CX tickets or DMs on Instagram or comments. Um, and I think there's a lot of really fantastic brands out there normalizing sexual health as well. Um, and for people who want to store it in a more private space, um, some of some of the brand's products can fit in our in our box as well. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I think there's so many things that, you know, maybe people want to kind of gate access to in their own personal life, whether it's cannabis, whether it's sex toys, whether it's jewelry, medicine. Like, there's a lot of things that you just don't want other people seeing by touching. So. My girlfriend would stash cool. her snacks on there because I keep eating all her chips that she placed. She did it today. She brought some sour onion chips and I just had to dig into them. So... Um, I could see that use case. Um, I'm curious, one last question from my end would be, what does your team composition look like? Just kind of want to paint the picture for whoever is listening, um, in terms of like the media side, the operation side, um, the brand side, what is, what is Tulip's, um, what is Tulip's team composed of today? So we keep it very lean. Um, you're, you're looking at the, the two, um, full-time team members here and then of course we have Joel my father-in-law who's um involved in the day-to-day -day and is um extremely tuned in to um R&D on our current set of products the product improvements and new products um down the pike um as well as other areas of the business and we have our a TikTok content creator as well as another team member who is working on um, some paid media for us. But between Celia and myself, we really divide and conquer on every other aspect of the business. So, you know, you've heard a lot from Celia on product development, operations, um, supply chain, legal. Um, site you name it and then i'm on I, I probably left a ton of things out and then i'm on i'm on brand um marketing um content design merchandising all that fun stuff amazing and guys for anyone listening where can they connect with you guys as well as uh learn more about the brand tulip so you can visit our site shoptulip.com and our social channels are pick tulip Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Um, Stephanie and Celia have also been kind enough to to give our listeners a little discount code. So if you're looking for a little stash box for the house, um, enter code DTCPOD10 on, on Tulip site for 10% for off. Thank you guys so much. I know our listeners are going to love that. Uh, so thank you guys for coming on the pod and we can't wait to continue to see you guys grow. Thanks so much. You're Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.